You're listening to Season 7 of Bionic Planet, brought to you by VERA, the world's most widely followed environmental standard, and by Responsible Alpha, a collaborative, high-impact ESG consultancy helping investors, businesses, and communities transition to a low-carbon, sustainable, and equitable future. Every single tree of Africa is mapped outside the forest. Every tree be mapped. Sasan Sachi is one of the world's leading authorities on the global carbon cycle, and his research is both broad and deep. Here on Bionic Planet, we've referenced his work on everything from the ability of well-managed forests to store carbon, to the ability of drones and satellites to supply the data that generates those findings. As a senior scientist with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, he's spent 30 years helping the world's space agencies and foresters blend the new science of the space age with the old sciences of shipbuilding and forestry to create a global system for monitoring the amount of carbon flowing into and out of all of the world's forests. Some farms and small holders in Burkina Faso have many trees, trees near the rivers, here in the fields, people use it for shade. Those trees, the ensemble, the big picture is they're really contributing a lot. And when you do that, also you remove that uncertainty in the land part of the climate carbon cycle because those count. Those count because every tree on the planet, whether inside or outside a forest, breathes in carbon dioxide and breathes out oxygen. Scientists like Sasan have spent decades mapping forests because forests are concentrated pools of carbon. But the definition of what is and isn't a forest changes from country to country. And the carbon in trees outside of forests adds up too, especially on a continent like Africa, where the areas legally defined as forest are pretty small relative to the number of trees overall. That's critical to meeting the climate challenge. So when Sasan and his team realized they had the technology to map every tree on the planet outside of forests, they started with Africa. So we finished that. We're doing the U.S. now. Steve caught up to Sasan at year-end climate talks in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, where the two discussed the half-century evolution of what we now call remote sensing, or the ability to measure the carbon content of trees from the sky. They focused on Sasan's latest initiative, Sea Trees. That's the letter C followed by the word trees and how sea trees is supporting next year's global stock take under the Paris Climate Agreement. We finished the California. We mapped every single tree in California, inside and outside forest, with 50 centimeter data set. That means down in a half meter, about two feet, across the entire state. And not just in terms of where trees are, but how big they are, how much carbon they store, and most importantly of all, how that changes over time. The entire U.S. is going to be finished next year, and then we're going to go to other continents. So soon we're going to have, hopefully by the end of next year, the tree-level data set. If all goes according to plan, the data will be ready for next year's global stock take at COP28 in Dubai. Unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. 
There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we explore in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by humankind's impact on Earth. And today we explore that with Sasan Sachi, who spoke to Steve at the year-end climate talks in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Hi. I'm Sasan Sachi. I'm a senior scientist at NASA JPL in Pasadena, California. I've been working in the global carbon cycle and ecosystems for more than 25 years. My main work has been always looking at the satellite data, combining it with the inventory on the ground, and trying to be able to better quantify the carbon in the forest, how it's changing, how the climate is impacting it, and then what is at stake for future. Yeah, and I remember, I think I first encountered you 15 years ago at a climate event, and you were outlining the next generation of remote sensing and where we're at now and where we're going to go. And uh, you helped me on an article back about 12 or 13 years ago, and the gist was, we still need ground truthing. We're not there yet. We can't tell from the sky what's on the ground with anywhere near the certainty that we need to just do these projects the way we really want to. Things have changed a little bit since then, though, haven't they? <laughs> Things have changed a lot, in fact. And I would say that in the past maybe five to ten years, something significant has happened in our community. And there are two things. One is there has been major advancements in computation. So things that we couldn't really do in terms of looking at the satellite data. We have more than 40 years, and now it's going to get to 50 years of satellite observation from NASA and other space agencies. But we could never, ever explore the entire data sets, look at the history of what's going on the land. We've done it over small areas, but this advancements in the cloud computing and AI has now enabled us to really look at the big data and long-term processes. I think that's one. Second, I think with the urgency of the climate change, the space agencies and also private sector have come forward and actually put together a fleet of satellites, new satellites, that has enabled us to really look at things that we couldn't do before. First of all, we can look at areas within 50 centimeter mm -hmm. on the land wow. globally to a few meters. We now actually measure structure of the forest. And so things that 15 years ago when I was talking to you, we really needed to validate a lot with the ground data. I think validation is always a good thing because it brings trust in the data. But now we have measurements that can actually help us to directly 
estimate a lot of both on the land, but also other sectors looking at the emissions coming out. So it's actually improved a lot. And we can talk about the details more if you want. Yeah. Before we get into the details, what do you mean by the structure of the forest? Thinking about land in general and forest, there are two measurements that are extremely significant and important. One is to really look at the activity data in the kind of terminology of the mm-hmm. IPCC. Activity data means how humans are changing the land. Mm -hmm. Deforestation, forest degradation, regenerations, fires, and all that stuff. So we have now several satellites that really looks at the activity data. We can monitor them really carefully. We can quantify all these details. We can quantify the logging as detail as possible. The second thing is we call it inventory data. Mm -hmm. Inventory was always something that's done on the ground. But mm-hmm. forests are going and measuring trees. They measure diameter of the trees and height of the trees. And they put in an equation, they calculate the mass and the half of the mass is the carbon. So now we can actually measure the structure of the forest, meaning we can measure the height of the trees. We can actually measure the crown of the trees. We don't measure the diameter of the trees, but okay. we're getting close to right. that. So really what foresters have been doing on the ground now we can do it from air and space, which is huge, which is yeah. significant. Yes. Yeah. And just to clarify, because I think a lot of our listeners won't know about allometric equations and things like that. But it, you, essentially, when you're trying to do a forest inventory, you go out, you take random samples, you measure trees at chest height, right. get the height of the tree. And then if you know the species of the tree, you don't know the exact carbon content of any specific tree, but you know that if you get 100 of them, it'll average out to where you can have a really solid idea of how much carbon is in that particular tree, and that's what you're describing. Exactly, now. exactly. The yeah. foresters, it's a tradition for more than 100 years. They've actually developed statistical techniques to really quantify the biomass of the forest. It was done mainly for the timber yeah. industry because they wanted to do it. Now we use the same techniques to look at the carbon. I find that so ironic that the tools that were used to quantify the timber to extract it are now being used to quantify the carbon to keep it. Yeah, in fact, some of the interesting data that we have, we started looking at, is in old days, people who built ships, they needed to have masts for ships. And the mast was basically, they would take the best wood, they would know exactly the species, they would know the height, wood density, and they develop equations and models to relate the diameter and the height of the trees, how hard the tree is, how soft the tree is. That science, which is probably close to a few hundred years old, maybe uh-huh. more, is still the science that we are using in terms of those are <laughs> allometric equations. That's amazing. I, I find that so fascinating. Another thing, somebody who is a former timber guy who shifted into carbon accounting, mentioned that companies look for about an 80% confidence interval, whereas in in Red Plus, under the IPCC, we need 95%. Mm -hmm. We're holding ourselves to a lot higher account than the bad guys, for lack of a better word, hold themselves to. That's a very important point you brought up. Precision is very important. We can always deal a little bit with the bias, where we call it systematic error, but change is important. So for doing the change, precision is very important. So if you know the area, Mm. and so if you have... 20% 20% error or just 80% confidence interval, then the changes it's happening within that percent, 20% mm-hmm. that you don't really know. So I think that's why the recommendation is to really do this 
analysis, either on the ground or from remote sensing, such that we have a really good precision in detecting changes. Gotcha. Yeah, I should have figured that out. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> now let's go back. I think it really helps to understand the history of this, to understand where we're at now and why it's so exciting to be where we're at. I mean, a lot of people coming into this space are like, well, can't we just use radar? Let's just do it. It's been a long, long journey. And I'm wondering if we can go back and talk about what the state of the art was when you first got in and how it works. Like when you're doing remote sensing, what are you looking at? You're looking at pixels and then how are you matching what you see from the sky with what is on the ground? How are you doing it then? And what have been the big changes that have gotten us to where we're at now? I think some of the work that we are doing, it's not that different what we did 15 years ago. What has changed is the measurements have become really rich. So before we had maybe two or three, we'd say bands of data sets to really look at by bands means frequencies and you get the reflectance like when the camera takes a picture it's the rgb red and green blue let's say that's three bands that you can define the colors so when we used to look at only these three colors and then infer a lot of things but now when the measurements has become much better and more accurate and then a large number of measurements and it's not like optical data, we have radar data, we have laser data, we have a variety of versions of each and at multiple resolutions, that helps us a lot to decipher what is really going on. We can separate, for example, trees from each other. We can separate different type of a structure. Is it short? Is it tall? We can do a lot with that. Measurement has become rich. Of course, when the measurement is richer, you come up with much more sophisticated information. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like one line and one plotting X versus Y. And now we have 20 or 50 or 100 X values. And then we're going to define that Y. So you have more information. You have more dimensionality for you can quantify things much better. You can observe and quantify and classify things much better with the data set that we have. So you're talking about visual images. When did LiDAR start to enter the picture here? It was around maybe, I would say, 15 years ago. But in the past 10 years, it has really ramped up in terms of usage and laser measurements in the field and with the drones and airborne and also satellite. A quick note. Steve threw in the term LiDAR there, but that's not to be confused with radar. LIDAR stands for Laser Imaging Detection and Ranging, while RADAR stands for Radio Detection and Ranging. There are two different tools for measuring the amount of carbon in forests, and they offer different insights that seem contradictory, until you consider them in context. It's like this with all climate solutions. None of them work alone, but they all fit together like pieces of a giant global mosaic. Carbon finance supports government activities and accelerates supply chain reforms, while also driving the creation of new technologies, like the ones we're discussing today. Those technologies, in turn, improve traceability and reduce the cost of regulation, while also providing new scientific insights that in turn support new solutions we haven't even thought of yet. That's why context is so important. But context is also what so many of our major media outlets do poorly. That's why we launched Bionic Planet seven years ago. 
not just to bring you individual stories, but to show how those individual stories fit into the global effort to meet the climate challenge. It's a tough job, and one we hope we're succeeding at, thanks to our sponsors Vera and Responsible Alpha. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more and better episodes, you can also help us deliver them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support us for as little as $1 an episode and with a monthly cap. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Also, if you're an ethical business looking to reach a global audience, you can advertise on Bionic Planet or become a sponsor as well. Just reach out to Steve by sending an email to steve at bionic-planet.com. Once again, that email address is steve at bionic-planet.com. Finally, you can help just by giving us a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you use to listen to the show. That helps because the more stars we get, the more ears we get. And the more ears we get, the more minds we can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Now, back to Sasan Sachi, who was about to explain how the different tools of remote sensing all fit together. One of the advancements in remote sensing has been that we always looked at a picture and looking spatially what's going on. It was like a flat image of places. So one advancement has been that now we're looking at 3D of image. So now not only we look at just on the top what you see visually, but we can X-ray and look at exactly what is underneath. And so that's a major advancement. And took laser is one of the ways to do that. Radar is another ways of doing it. And then there are other versions of looking at the stereo photogrammetry and other measurements that gives you kind of a stereo image. And that helps you to decipher what you're seeing on the land. You can separate these bushes, which are three or four meter tall from the tree, which is next to it and five or six meter tall, just because the way they're structured, the way they're located and the shades they cast on the ground. Another element besides that 3D is the fourth dimension, uh, measuring things over time. We have better measurements. We design the system such that they last long or have continuity in terms of observation. So now the fourth dimension is like time. Right, right. So we can see the evolution of things. A tree has been planted 15 years ago. We can get the age of that. Mapping, I'll tell you more about it later, yeah. but we're really mapping the age of the regenerations globally by having 20 years or 30 years of data. And recent data sets allows us to even separate plantations from forests, agriculture from forests. So that's become much better. I understand the, the need to see changes in land use over time, but you're talking about seeing the age of trees. Can you then tell when there might be a transition coming in a forest? Exactly. There are several good applications of it. One is there is a lot of plantations, regenerations. If you look at the timber industry in U.S., especially in the temperate and northern countries, is usually you cut the forest, you take all the timber, because it's all pine, for example, you take all the timber out and let the forest grow. Okay, It's very different than selective logging that goes in the tropics. So now the growth of this tree over time and after 
20 years they come back and or 10 years they come back and cut again so what people had to do by going and seeing the forest to see if the growth is really good and manage it now we can actually look at the satellite observations over time and really tell you how it's growing and what is the age of the that forest and that simplifies a lot of work that's one aspect of what these observations over temporal is meaningful. The other thing is, in terms of carbon, we really need to know that delta carbon, that changes of yeah. the carbon, and time is extremely important. If we have very precise measurements and then see the system now and second time, foresters, they go to the field, they put plots, like the U.S. forests or in Norway or other countries, they put the plots, they come back five years later and look at the plots and to see what is, are the trees bigger or smaller, has been cut or been. So that's how they really see the changes. Now we can do that thing from satellite. Mm -hmm. So that could also make things like dynamic baselines easier. Dynamic baselines are something we'll cover in the coming weeks. They're a baseline deforestation rate for one area of forest extrapolated from rates of deforestation in nearby similar areas of forest. But they only work in countries that have detailed and reliable national forest inventories, which until now required an army of foresters out there on the ground, armed with tape measures, clinometers, and allometric equations. As remote sensing improves, we may soon be able to develop those kinds of forest inventories from the sky. And that would also make it applicable even in developing countries, because that's this issue with the, the dynamic baselines is that without going into too much detail on what they are, but the idea is that if you've got a reference region that's maybe composed of synthetic controls from a bunch of different regions and you can compare it in real time to what's happening on the land, and the issue is, do you have the data? And it sounds like we could actually start applying this in developing countries based on the remote sensing that we have right now. Yes. The dynamic baseline in general is basically to quantify what has gone on the land in the past and then now that you're coming with a new plan in terms of either saving that forest or making sure that doesn't get deforested how much carbon you're gonna generate in terms of credit and mm -hmm. stuff but if you allow yourself to really see the landscape over time and then also spatially it helps you to actually quantify that baseline very much and then the credits that you're developing over time right so a lot of the reason that it's going to help a lot the developing world is right now there is so much demand mm -hmm. in the northern hemisphere for carbon credit and the suppliers of this carbon credit is in the south so this almost 90 percent or 80 percent i don't know exactly the recent statistics is demand because of the carbon offset and south is producing that carbon. right right when we spoke back in 2008 or so, you were doing work in Ghana. And at the time, you were predicting with your sky data, whatever we right. want to call it, and then going out and using the ground sensing to see how accurate you were and then recalibrating. And I, right. I assume this process was going on for decades, probably. Can you talk about that process and how it brought us to where we're at now? How, what kind of changes were made as a result over time? Or did it turn out that, hey, these are actually more accurate than we thought? Well, uh, definitely they were not more accurate than okay. we thought. We are now more accurate, uh -huh. and that's true. But I remember I went to Ghana 
with a map which I printed to go mm-hmm. and show it to the minister, which basically we mapped the forest cover and also the biomass of the forest. And we used some radar data and some optical data set to do this. And then uh, they sent some people to come to NASA JPL, work with me to, with the, some ground truth data. So key problem, as I mentioned, since the quality of our data sets was not that great, even when we trained our model or remote sensing data with the ground measurements, we were very accurate in the areas that we were, but extrapolating for another 10 kilometer, 20 kilometer, the error starts building up because there were a lot of changes that happens. The species of trees are different. The landscape is different. There's topography and elevation. There an area rains. You really have to take care of all of those things. And that's what I was saying, that we work with only a few data sets to really do this thing. And we pushed our system to have less bias. So the foresters that have put plot data on the ground, they would use the data and say, okay, this is reasonable. And at least they can see visually what's going on. These are low, this is high, and this is medium. And at that level, we could really be good in terms of saying these are low biomass areas, these are medium biomass areas, and this is your rainforest high biomass areas in Ghana. But now we can actually quantify them much, much better in details because of this. this. First of all, we have a lot of temporal data sets. So if you look at an area and next day the satellite data provide you another image and it rained the night before, the reflectance that you see from satellite data Mm. is different from the one. So you saw the patch of the forest next to it yesterday, which it didn't rain. It has one reflectance. The next day, you see the satellite, the area. So if, and they might have exactly the same carbon number or they might be exactly the same forest. But if you don't really take that difference, which is natural difference that happens out of the system, you can really make a mistake. Mm -hmm. And now the richness of the data allows us to take those differences out. Or there are other effects as well, like in terms of differences of the species, you know, Mm. you need to have more bands and information to really separate that. So in a nutshell, I think we have moved from qualitative assessment, as we say in our Mm -hmm. jargon, to a more quantitative assessment because the data have become rich and we have better computing power and better techniques Mm -hmm. in our hands to really do that. And when we talk about AI, does it mean that it's able to identify species? I think you said not yet, right? We can't really tell a species remotely? We can do that with some data sets. Okay. Separating species of vegetation, trees, or plants in general requires much rich data sets to have. And we don't have those from the satellite data yet. There are plans to have those. What we have, it allows us to get the general what we call it, functional types of the conifers from deciduous trees, mm-hmm. some level of broadleaf plants from needle leaf plants in general, and maybe separate some species. You can see a black spruce in a Canadian forest, different from a pine from or a deciduous tree. Right, right, so right. those general patterns we can. Now, there are a lot of airborne data sets that we've developed and there are now plans to go to the space. Mm-hmm. The airborne data gives you 200, mm-hmm. 300 bands 
through the entire spectrum. And each plant, depending on the color of the leaf, mm -hmm. the pigments, how much water they have, what is the size of the leaves and the shape of the leaves, they have a different levels of absorptions. So if you have multiple bands, you mm -hmm. really can suddenly start separating these leaves and a structure of the plant such that you can help you to distinguish what are the species. And there are a lot of spectral library now that uh -huh. we've developed from ground measurements and airborne data sets. So when the satellite get launched, there is a satellite that NASA is building, probably it would be launched in five, more than five years from now. But that would allow you to really then start looking at not only biodiversity, but a lot of chemistry on the plants, mm -hmm. the nitrogen, content, the phosphor content, okay. all of those things that helps to see exactly how these plants are functioning in right, different right. climates and different conditions. So we're not there from space yet, but we're right, getting right. there. To put it into simple English, you're talking about drones and you're talking about satellites. Can you just describe briefly the role of each of these different data gathering tools? Sure. We just published a book mm -hmm. with few authors. It's called The Atlas of Trees and Forests Globally. And there are a few chapters on it that we also look at the history of how vegetation was mapped. You know, from old days, people tried to go up through either balloons in order to take a picture and basically look at land and then visually interpret what's going on. So in general... Airborne data was the first techniques that right. we used to really survey the land. It was done both by civilians and geographers and also military. And that's the history of kind of remote sensing comes from there. And having cameras, flying, taking pictures and identifying, you map the place very mm -hmm. well. And then you take those pictures, which was all analog, there was no digital, mm -hmm. and you interpret them through mm -hmm. certain machines. So that tradition still exists. When we come up with a new idea and we want to build a new system, we first test it in the laboratory to see mm -hmm. if it works. Right. Then we deploy it on an airborne aircraft. We okay. fly that to uh -huh. see exactly we can really interpret now over large areas and stuff. And then we mature that system to a level that it can work from space mm -hmm. and Part of it is a hardware design, how it can last in space right, right, in that right. condition. But part of it is also how from space that instrument can take images or measurements. That Because there are some instruments that work very well on an aircraft, but they're not really, when you go really far away, then the angle would be different mm -hmm. or the beam would not be strong and stuff. Laser is one of those. Right. You have powerful lasers working on the airborne data sets. But when you go to this space, you really need to think about the power and how that works. Okay. Yeah. It's so fascinating. We've got the people on the ground, you got the airborne devices, exactly. and you've got the satellites, yeah. and if they all align, we're in good right. shape. And if one now of them... Now drones, you know, we never yeah. had drones before, but yeah. now drones are becoming very powerful. There are a lot of good instruments on drones where people yeah. locally can actually do remote sensing. Yeah, I remember like just eight or nine years ago when an indigenous group in Brazil started using drones. It was a huge deal. It was a big, big step. And now everybody's got drones, you yeah. know? Yeah. And which is great because yeah. it's not so easy if you have 10,000 hectare of mm -hmm. land to really know exactly what is the status of it. The ACK community were 
actually very progressive in that sense because mm -hmm. they found out how their crop is growing and if there is any disease coming, if stress because of water and stuff happening in the crop, they start using remote sensing and drones and even satellite data right, much right. faster than any other community. Mm -hmm. Forestry groups came much, much later. That's interesting. Yeah. I thought it was the other way around. <laughs> no, no, no. The, yeah. I mean, foresters use stereo mapping mm -hmm. long time ago to look at the height of the trees and right. stuff. There was some level of the remote sensing. But the ag community has becoming really, really active in terms of taking these pictures. You know, we, we had some projects working with the wine country in Northern California mm -hmm. because they were really, really worried about droughts coming in and impacting water and also fire. So provided remote sensing data, measuring, you know, the temperature of the plants, right, right. things that they do on the ground, we were able to give it to them and they have acres and acres of vineyards and they really couldn't have people going constantly detecting these things. And the satellite or airborne imagery was really, really good for them. You know, now the commercial ones, they give you 50 centimeter uh, resolution so you can really see their property very well every time you want. Right, right. That's just amazing. Are we missing anything that would make the technology even clearer before we go into what C-Trees does and everything else? Well, first of all, technology is improving over time. So there are a few new satellites are coming on board just because of the climate change and all these IPCCs. The space agencies spend close to probably $2 billion for a few instruments that helps actually quantify the carbon in the forest and monitor that over time. We had one instrument that was launched on the space station in 2000, late 2018, was JEDI, and that has been providing data. It's a laser that actually samples the forest and gives you the height and three-dimensional structure, similar to what PLOTS does. Every footprint is around 25 meter, and that has become really excellent data for us, as if like we are having now inventory PLOTS a lot of places in the world. And there is two radar systems coming on board, one by NASA, which is called NISAR, which is the NASA, ISRO, ISRO being the Indian Space Agency. And it's a radar data. It's at L-band wavelengths, like 24, 25 centimeter wavelength. And they're going to measure the dynamic of the forest changes. And on a weekly basis, we're going to have data sets to see exactly where the trees and forests are being disturbed, how they're growing, how they're changing, how they're responding to climate. So it's going to be game changer in terms wow. of, yeah. I had to use the word game changer so much because you hear that a lot in yeah. the IPCC meeting. But it's really a game changer because we really never had these radar data sets to give us data. So we're producing between 30 to 100 terabits of data sets a day from this and all in the cloud available to everybody freely to use. The next one is a system that Europeans are building and it's going to be launched also early 2024. NISOR is going to be launched early 2024 as well. And it's called Biomass, in fact. And I've been part of that team. And that's also a radar system. It works a little bit differently. It doesn't have the temporal frequency, but it does the 3D. So now thinking about what we were talking before, now we have the three dimension on the from laser and that type of radar coming in and has a sensitivity to really high biomass regions like tropics and then we have the temporal observation over time i think that really 
after the next stock take, which is the 2003 after Paris Agreement, in by starting from 2024, we're going to have really nailed down the problem of carbon in the forest and how it's changing. So that's, I think, one of the major things I'm really looking for yeah. because I spend. 15 years or 20 years of my career on these two yeah. instru three instruments right, right. Uh, so i'm really seeing the fruit of it and uh, my students would benefit from it more than i do but <laughs> i think i'm really excited about that well yeah it's your life's work and it's finally yeah, here exactly speaking of life's work you've now got a new uh, venture i guess i would call it or project called sea trees yes and i know people are pretty excited about sea trees and what it can bring to precision in carbon markets and also to wider distribution of the type of data that's available. I think WRI and Vera are both looking at working with it, right? Or am I wrong on that? Yes. I mean, everybody, the data would be available to everybody to use it. But the reason we developed these nonprofit is some of us, me at NASA and some of our colleagues who've been really working on this problem for a long time, and we have been publishing paper and helping with documents to IPCC reports over time for the policymakers, we decided that now it's time because of the urgency that uh, stock tech changes and countries really need this data to operationalize the right, system right. and make it such that it would go, it would be still science-based, but it would go from science to more application, to what really they need. Right. So I think that link, that bridge, it's something that we are providing. So we're using a variety of the satellite data, our own models that we developed over time, and AI, and we're producing data sets which goes over time, it goes from almost a hectare of land on the ground, that you would know the carbon numbers, how it's evolving through time, and it also tells you what are the activities that are happening. We're actually producing our own deforestation maps and degradation maps and fire. So it allows us to really make sure everything is consistent. So during the COP, we launched the first part of the platform, which is kind of the jurisdictional numbers mm -hmm. for the countries, for people to look at it. It tells you how much carbon you have in your forest and also non-forest. We also include non-forest. The reason we included non-forest is because there are a lot of areas in the world that's called non-forest, right, but they right. have trees. And Can you explain it, that? Because yeah, that is right. something, too, that goes back to the whole need to define what is and isn't a forest and forest and non-forest and all that. Can you briefly just summarize why we need these thresholds to say, okay, here's some trees, here's a forest? Well, the history of that is also... It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's political, but also, you know, like anything else, people like to have their own definition. So countries come up with their own definition of what forest is. Mm -hmm. Some people say half a hectare of land, which is covered by 10% of trees, we call it forest. And it has to be more than five meters tall or three meters tall. And another country says, no, 30%, we call it forest. It just comes from the history, again, timber industry and right, all that right. stuff, how they're defined there. And then there are managed forests and unmanaged forests. There are all these things that really create a complexity. When the country is reporting to UNFCC through whatever channels that they have, and when you look at numbers, you really cannot bring coherence. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't know it. So that's why when we look at the global carbon cycle, there is always this element that they say the land is the most uncertain. Mm -hmm. Ocean is much better. We know the fluxes of the ocean. So these definitions were wrong. So we did one study. We published it last year in a journal of science advances. 
and few other groups have done similar work, we noticed that thinking about, for example, a continent like Africa, you have rainforests like in the Congo Basin, some Western Africa, and then you have these woodlands and shrublands. Uh -huh. And then some areas of the woodlands, maybe the trees are more packed next right, to each other, right. like the Miombo forest in Africa. But then when you go on a safari trips, it's all these shrublands and mm. trees there. None of those are coming in the definition of the forest. Right, right. So when we quantified that carbon and just much coarser resolutions, not counting individual trees, we noticed, since our data is sensitive to the tree biomass, we noticed that the amount of carbon that you have in those woodlands and sparse vegetation is almost equivalent to the rainforests of Africa. And in terms of dynamic, wow. they're extremely more dynamic because they get constantly hit by fire and disturbance and herbivores, you know, elephants and giraffes and stuff. They're more dynamic. So their impact on the atmosphere, in fact, was much larger than the impact of the rainforest. Whereas now the entire attention is going to rainforest. And also those countries that are in these savanna woodlands areas, they are not strongly participating on these red projects or right, right, yeah. like all carbon offset projects and stuff because people think that these are non-forests. Yeah. Whereas the huge, huge impact. Yeah. So I think we decided, okay, this is something that we need to emphasize because first of all, in our science, when we want to know exactly what's going on in the atmosphere, they're important. Right. So if they're important in terms of mitigating climate change, they should be important for carbon market, exactly, yeah. any credits yeah, yeah. and stuff. So we are actually really work on that. So one of our first thing we did in Sea Trees were our sister group, we are your international group, University of Copenhagen, Martin Brandt and Rasmus Fenschold, their team actually helped to map all the trees of Africa. So we have wow. <laughs> every single yeah. tree of Africa is mapped outside yeah. the forest. Every tree we mapped. And now we're bringing that into our model. The next version, actually, of C-Trees platform, we're going to release that data and we're going to account for all those single trees. And it's extremely important because when you look at some farms and small holders in Burkina Faso, we're just looking at the images, and you notice that they have many trees, trees near the rivers, here in the fields, people use it for shade. Those trees, the ensemble, the big picture is they're really contributing a lot. And when you do that, also you remove that uncertainty in the land part of the climate carbon cycle because those count. And so we finished that. We're doing the U.S. now. We finished the California. We mapped every single tree in California, <laughs> inside and outside forest, uh -huh. with 50-centimeter data set. And then we are going to do the entire U.S. is going to be finished next year, and then we're going to go to other continents. So soon we're going to have, hopefully by the end of next year, if we get all the data that we want, we will produce this and release the tree-level data set. And then for carbon accounting, because it's important, maybe for the next stock take or after that, all these countries, they can actually account for um, those trees within their territory. Right. Why did you start with Africa instead of, say, Brazil or something like that? Well, we are working in Brazil a lot, but Brazil, one of the key things in Brazil is close to 500 million hectares of forest. Right. And most of it is in the rainforest. And the attention of the whole world in terms of also 
the carbon cycle that we are very much interested in says how these forests are changing over time. You know, one aspect of it is deforestation degradations, the direct human activities. The second thing, the Amazon basin has been hit hard in the past 20 years with multiple droughts. Yeah. And I published one of the first papers on the drought in the, looking at 2005 drought, which was unprecedented. Yeah. And a huge amount of the forest trees died. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, stress because they're not adapted to this kind of episodic big drought. And then 2010, we had another one, 2015 and 16, these are El Nino uh, type of droughts. And so therefore the carbon in the Amazon, which was always a big sink, is no longer a sink. It's becoming neutral and in fact a source recently, even Brazilians came out and said that it is source. And that has, is no longer a sink. It's becoming neutral and in fact a source. And the implication of that is huge because if the land loses its ability to absorb carbon, we really have to do much more in our industry to reduce the emissions because yeah. between 25 to 30% of what we put on in space from our fossil fuel burning gets absorbed by land every year. Yeah. And that sink is extremely important. You, there are, you have to spend trillions of dollars to create that thing from your industry. Right. And so that's why these nature-based solutions are becoming more and more important. So that's for, for the Amazon, the first round we did this. And then now we're going to do the Cerrado and Catinga, which is these savanna areas mm -hmm. of Brazil and also going to, in general, South America. Because when you go to Argentina, Chile, the areas of the savanna increases. Mm -hmm. Those are the drier yeah, ecosystem and they're also very dynamic right so we can map so hopefully we'll finish that next year but africa more land area was under these woodlands and savannas right, right. than the rainforest the rainforest part of the africa is smaller relative yeah. to the amazon yeah it's interesting that you quantified the carbon in these areas that weren't previously being looked at what is the, the core mission of sea trees just to democratize everything to take everything that you've done so far and to take the best data and put it out there for everyone to use? Or do you have maybe more specific objectives that you're looking at? I think there are several objectives. One is really producing data sets that is validated and it's been carefully taken care of with the most recent science information we have. Since we are scientists, all of us who work on this, we are not necessarily thinking, oh, it's my data, is my intellectual property. Everything is open source. And if somebody comes out with a better methodology to do that, we'll take it. That's right. what we did for all you know, science work. So I think that's one difference that we have maybe with other groups. The second thing is we want to be global. And the reason we want to be global, that we want to come to the IPCC, to UNFCC, and we want to help to remove the uncertainties that is coming in from these variety of nationally mm -hmm. people reporting. And it's, it has become a problem. There were several talks this year within the IPCC reporting that the numbers do not match. Yeah, yeah. You know, because some countries don't have inventories that they, they, they haven't taken care of, the definitions are different. We need to nail this problem down. And we've been doing it within our science community for uh -huh. many years, and now we want to do it through sea trees so we bring that thing in. And then making the data available is extremely important. And then 
carbon finance that is going to really invest on these forests really requires the data that they can trust. And not only just trust, because there are a lot of groups or startups that do excellent jobs looking at small, but we need to add up all the efforts that are going on. Company X buys a forest or invests in a forest in the middle of Paraguay, and company Y does that in Africa. And each of them are doing some of their own calculations and right, stuff. Right. But who is going to add these up to see what is the global effect of these? The startups or other companies, they're doing excellent jobs to look at that, to look at the, the baselines, the additionality of these carbon offsets, which is great. We would like to complement that right, effort. Yeah. We need to be the ones to add up this and account it globally. And if you don't have a global system, you really cannot do it. Right. Yeah. So we are putting an emphasis there. We're looking at also resolutions, which we can look at small holders. So project developers or companies who really want to look at our data first before they go to the field and so they can actually use our data set as well. That's why I think we needed something like this to come in. And we sense that within our community for a long time and also coming to IPCC, talking to governors, to the jurisdictions and also project developers. We noticed that that's a gap and C-Trees is basically filling the gap. And then there are other things that we bring, like mapping into individual trees. We thought that's our niche as well. We're counting every trees globally and, and we made it in our C-Trees website. Every tree counts. And we'll go back to the technology discussion we had in the beginning. We could never, ever claim this mm-hmm. even five years ago. And it's now just it's a, become yeah, available. Yeah. And there are a lot of commercial companies like Planet, and other companies that are providing the data to us and um, and allowing us to do this. And being nonprofit, our goal is basically to get the data, do the work, and provide it to the community and be transparent, open source, and be able to be criticized, improve every version. It's a very dynamic system, C-Trees. We are going to improve every month, every uh, time we come to IPCC, you would see improved data and we'll see how the changes happen. Here at COP, who have you been talking to? What are you doing? What are the next steps for seed trees? Okay, during the COP, we launched our jurisdictional numbers for every jurisdiction, by jurisdiction meaning subnational, so national and subnational. You can go to our website, click and, and, and see that. And since I promise to be honest, I'd say there are some areas that maybe the numbers are not as, you know, correct. And we are providing the uncertainties also, but we produce this. So every jurisdiction, you can go subnational level, know exactly how much carbon you have in their forest, non-forest, what are the emissions in the past 21 years from 2000 to present, and also what is the removal, you know, how much you gain and stuff. So people can have an estimate. And that has triggered a, an interesting discussion within the community, a lot of states are here present. So we're meeting some of those groups. Um, One group is the Governor's Climate Action Task Force, which actually started in California. With Schwarzenegger. With Schwarzenegger a few years ago, but they have been very active. A lot of states globally in the tropics are involved and they are uh, going to meet, we're going to provide them training. We're actually designed some activities in the next few months to work with them to show them exactly how to use the data sets. Some of these states 
really do not have the inventory, they don't have the data. So the ones who have inventory and they have the data, they're gonna come with their data to us. Right, right. And we're gonna compare, we're gonna try to ingest that data set in our system to make sure things are matching. We remove those problems with how do you define your forest? Right, how right. do I define your forest? Mm -hmm. And those challenges are important. So we're working actively with them. So we're getting ready for the next COP, which is the first global stock take, where countries who have made commitments, these nationally determined commitments, NDCs that they have been reporting to UNFCC, they're going to provide more information. More countries are sending their NDCs. So my goal is with this interaction at the state level, for the next COP, we will be in a more improved and have actually a lot of people signed up to use our data sets. And this is mainly for tropics, but our data sets are global. Right, right. So we're working like with the US Forest Service. In fact, their data set is included in our data. So we're matching with their emissions and removals. And several scientists who report on the forest and the European commissions, they're gonna use our data set to compare. So we're gonna actually remove any discrepancies and be ready for the next year. So this COP as actually was the launching pad for us to get that interactions developed and then moving for the next launch we're going to have. And it could be used in the FRELs and everything. Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. and how um, FRELs forest reference emission level, just one Yes. And uh, which is what jurisdictions and countries, I think, or countries, countries have usually. to report to the UNFCCC exactly. if they want red and plus minus. FAO. Yeah. basically also um, reports this every five years. The 2020 is out. We are hoping in 2025, we would work with them, giving them the data sets. So hopefully by 2025, there would be less discrepancy of the data coming from UNFCC, right, right. FRA, and country reports and NDCs, because all of them are now indifference. Yeah, and you're familiar with the new Avoided deforestation modules, I guess. Exactly. This can be used for the risk mapping and, and everything exactly. else. Yeah. This, so. is, this is actually the reason. That's why we've been working a little bit closely with the voluntary carbon market, ICBCM framework. We're trying to make sure we are compatible and we also advise in terms of, you know, is it really an avoided deforestation or not? So making sure all these risks and lack of trust that exists in terms of investment with some scientific data that we're providing would be removed to make sure that both compliance market and the voluntary market can evaluate the quality of these credits based on the data set we provide. Because as I said, our data is really covers smallholders to yeah, a hectare yeah, that's... all the way global and anywhere over the past 20 some years. And we're, every year we're renewing it. So that helps a lot to look at the baseline, to look at the avoided deforestations, and how do you really evaluate the credit? And hold this dynamic baseline is, is already within our system. We don't have to do another extra effort to really calculate it because it's there. Yeah, I'm gonna have to do a whole show on dynamic baselines, I think. <laughs> yeah, and it's standardized globally too, which is also so helpful. I mean, that's the big problem, is that uh, everyone's got their own local way of doing things, and it just makes it so hard to compare. Well, yeah, I mean, we are using some of the best scientific methods that's been published, not just from our groups, but other groups to incorporate those in our calculations. However, there are a couple of other entities globally that are contributing in these standards. One of them is VERA, and 
we like to bring those standards, measurements, ways that they calculate. It, the calculation is almost the same. Uh -huh. And the way they report uncertainty and stuff is important to evaluate how much carbon credit you build over time. Like you have a project now, then next 50 years or 30 years, how much your carbon is building. So we're going to bring that in as well in our system. I already helped write a remote sensing a standard for Vera, which okay. has been approved a few years ago. And we're going to do a couple of more of those standards, hopefully with Vera. So methodologies that are using remote sensing, similar to us, would be standard as well. Because okay. right now, most of the methodologies are ground-based. Yeah. So those are important. And then there are other groups that are looking at other methodologies and standards. One of them is Leaf Coalition, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're using something called Art Trees. Mm -hmm. is a slightly different methodology. It's still very compatible with what we are doing in terms of activity data, and we're hoping to also work with them to make sure that our platform is being used and then maybe adjust our platforms to report numbers the way they want it as well. So we keep our consistency of really looking globally in a way that we think is important for matching what is happening in the atmosphere, because that's to me is the ultimate truth, is the right. frontier. If we cannot reduce the carbon in the atmosphere from all the things that we are doing, we haven't done anything. It's, yeah, it's just exactly. A, it's that's just a the bunch one. of cool stuff. So I want to make sure that whatever we do, the platform of sea trees really has that goal. And our team members, I should mention this because we have a really excellent team in France with uh, Philippe Sias. Um, leading it. And, and we have a great team in Denmark with Martin Brand and Rasmus Frenschel leading it. We have a team in Brazil, Luis Aragao, who's working with the Brazilian space industry, is a very excellent scientist, and our team in US that are working. So I think we all are concerned about making sure what we produce is a standard, but at the same time, uh, the concerns of the IPCC and UNFCC is also taken care of. That wraps up this edition of Bionic Planet. Coming to you from year-end climate talks is Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. This episode was produced by Deborah Friedman, whose sultry voice guided us through part of the episode, made possible with funding from standard-setting body Vera and Responsible Alpha. You can also help produce more and better episodes by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet there you can support us for as little as one dollar per episode and that wraps up today's show till next time i'm steve zwick thanks for listening bionic planet